You're listening to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. Vera, standards for a sustainable future. Environmental NGOs, indigenous organizations, and sustainable farmers all help maintain the living systems that purify our water, regulate our climate, and deliver other ecosystem services on which our entire civilization depends. As providers of ecosystem services, they nurture the land in ways that benefit us all. But we rarely pay them what they're worth because our economic system values timber over forests and soy over savannas. For most of their existence, these providers of ecosystem services were forced to support themselves by begging for money, dancing for donors, or selling fewer dead bits of nature than their competitors, essentially handicapping themselves for the benefit of the rest of us. It's an arrangement that worked for some, but not for most, and certainly not for those engaged in more complicated activities, such as ecological restoration, rural development, or other interventions requiring decades to reach fruition and not lending themselves to simple messaging. Yes, some of these workhorse projects did get funded, but most did not, and many of those that did manage to get off the ground soon found themselves treading water when their short-term funding dried up. They were, in other words, trapped in a perpetual short squeeze, scrambling to meet long-term obligations with short-term donations and rarely able to reliably plan ahead. Meanwhile, back in the 1990s, a handful of for-profit companies started taking the climate challenge seriously, and they found themselves in a related but different quandary. Carpet Maker Interface is one of those. I told you about their decades-long climate journey in episode 65 of Bionic Planet, and you may recall a cornerstone of their solution was the creation of something they call carbon-negative carpets. The idea was simple. By replacing vinyl backing with something made of plants, Interface figured they could flip their production process from being a source of greenhouse gases to one that pulls more carbon from the atmosphere than it emits. That simple idea, however, proved difficult to realize, and it wasn't until 2020 that the company finally brought its carbon-negative carpets to market. But here's the thing, Interface didn't have to wait until 2020 to offer carbon-neutral carpets, even though the use of vinyl meant greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, by the time they perfected their carbon-negative approach, they'd been offering carbon-neutral carpets for more than 15 years. How? By offsetting those emissions they weren't able to eliminate, in part by helping NGOs save endangered forests to keep carbon locked in trees, technically by financing activities that come under the rubric of Red Plus, which you regular listeners know quite well. Red Plus stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, plus enhancing the ability of land systems to store carbon. But the acronym didn't exist when Interface started offsetting its emissions at the turn of the century, neither did most of the methodologies 
that underpin today's carbon standards. Those methodologies emerged in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which was an age of experimentation and discovery in the field of carbon crediting. It was an exciting period, but one without rules. So it was a wild west of sorts, with companies and NGOs taking disparate approaches, sharing little in the way of lessons learned, and operating from no clear consensus on how to measure impacts or how to compare one project to another. That all changed with the emergence of carbon standards like the Verified Carbon Standard, which is administered by Vera, my primary sponsor, but also Gold Standard. Drawing on the latest scientific literature and input from a broad array of stakeholders, standard-setting bodies created a structured, methodological approach to developing new climate solutions. I know I use this word methodologies a lot. It's a horrible, boring word. But those methodologies are critical. They're science-based, stepwise approaches to creating carbon projects or evaluating their efficacy. And they're the difference between the Wild West days of 15 to 25 years ago and now. We learned a lot of lessons in those freewheeling years, as well as in the years since. And those lessons are embedded into Dave's methodologies, as well as in new methodologies going through the tedious process of expert review and public consultation that ensures they reflect the latest science and not just the pet theories of outlier academics, tech bros, or instant experts who are flooding into the market today. The advent of carbon standards made it possible for companies to drive emissions down deeper and faster than they otherwise could, and many did just that. In 2016, Ecosystem Marketplace dug into data from CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, and found corporations that used voluntary carbon markets weren't doing so to avoid making internal reductions, but as part of a broader strategy to reduce emissions by, for example, creating an internal price on carbon, among other things. That, however, was before the Great Awakening of 2019, when the rest of the world finally started taking the climate challenge seriously. Suddenly, companies that couldn't previously be bothered to even think of climate change were scrambling to position themselves as climate leaders, albeit with varying degrees of sincerity. Media started parachuting reporters into the space with no guidance on what to look for. It's great to see this new energy coming into the space now, but it's not so great to be in a position where 95% of the people engaged in meeting the greatest threat our civilization has ever faced weren't even acknowledging the threat's existence three years ago. Without a critical mass of people understanding the issues, we're in danger of sliding back into those Wild West days of old before standards emerged, and which, ironically, many newcomers are dragging us back to now. Remember what George Santayana said about people who don't know history being condemned to repeat it? It's happening. So today I'm offering another look back on history to six key lessons from a half century of natural climate solutions. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene.
We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we continue our three-part dive into the dangerous disconnect between perception and reality on how carbon markets support nature-based solutions to the climate challenge. We do so by covering some of the same territory we explored in episodes 49 through 51, where I took you inside the negotiations that led to the inclusion of Red Plus in the Paris Agreement. This time we look at six key lessons from the history of natural climate solutions. Like my last episode, this one is adapted from a three-part series I wrote for Ecosystem Marketplace last year. By adapted, I mean I made it more conversational, included new research, and trimmed some digressions while adding others. I'd also like to introduce an old friend and colleague from my days at Radio Deutsche Welle in Cologne, Germany, Deborah Friedman, who will be doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes lifting so that I can produce more episodes going forward. Hey, Steve. I'm really glad to be here. I've uh, always admired your work, and you've already started converting the backlog of interviews I've been blabbing to listeners about into episodes. I think uh, together we'll be able to finally get onto that weekly or bi-weekly schedule that I've been promising people for over here. That's right. Yeah, thanks for having me on board. I'm really looking forward to helping you put the shows together. Great, great. And this episode is going to be a long one, and I know people are curious to learn more about you. Um, I think we can do that in the next installment of this series. So why don't you get us started with the first lesson? You got it. Lesson one, carbon markets began with natural climate solutions more than 45 years ago. The term natural climate solutions didn't enter the vernacular until 2017, but these solutions are nothing new. We all learned about photosynthesis in high school, and it was old news when Svante Arrhenius warned about the greenhouse effect in 1896. It was even older news in the 1920s when German scientists started talking about planting trees to slow climate change. Those German papers were ancient history in 1976, when U.S. physicist Freeman Dyson published a paper that asked the question, can we control the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? His answer? The long-term response to climate change must be to stop burning fossil fuels and convert our industry to renewable photosynthetic fuels, nuclear fuels, geothermal heat, and direct solar energy conversion. But a worldwide shift from fossil to non-fossil fuels could not be carried out in a few years. An emergency plant-growing program would, however, provide the necessary short-term response to hold the CO2 at bay, while the shift away from fossil fuels is being implemented. Dyson, who passed away in 2020 at the age of 96, was what we used to call a futurist. That was a hot label back in the 60s and 70s. 
But all futurists had some ideas that turned out to be pretty wacky. Dyson talked about turning comets into space-borne farms, for example. He also overstated the potential for natural climate solutions to get us out of this mess. He was, in other words, an outlier on some issues, but he knew he was an outlier, and he knew the value of peer review and response. Here's the real Freeman Dyson from 2007. Science is organized on predictability. What scientists do is to arrange things in an experiment to be as unpredictable as possible, and then do the experiment to see what will happen. You might say that if something is predictable, then it's not science. So when I'm making predictions, I'm not speaking as a scientist. This evening I'll be speaking as a storyteller, and my predictions will be science fiction rather than science. The predictions of science fiction writers are notoriously in inaccurate. Their purpose is to imagine what might happen rather than to describe what will happen. My purpose is to tell some stories that challenge the prevailing dogmas of the day. The prevailing dogmas may be right, but they still need to be challenged. I'm proud to be a heretic. I mention all of this for reasons I hope will become clear in my next installment. Even geniuses have crackpot ideas, especially when venturing outside their core disciplines, and individual papers mean nothing if they're not substantiated by later examination. Fortunately, decades of examination have substantiated Dyson's tree planting conclusion, and nature-based solutions have been central to the climate challenge ever since. So has the recognition that climate change is a market failure because environmental impacts exist outside the market economy, as economist William Nordhaus pointed out in a 1977 paper called Economic Growth and Climate, the Carbon Dioxide Problem, which I'll link to in the show notes. I talked about this in my early episodes of Bionic Planet back in 2016, and Nordhaus went on to win the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2018, together with Paul Romer. Environmental markets are one way of bringing the cost of environmental degradation into the cost of production. And the ideas that Nordhaus and Romer articulated 45 years ago led to several ways of doing that. For our purposes, I'll divide them into two types of carbon finance. One type focuses on the ability of high carbon prices to drive change, while the other focuses on the ability of carbon markets to drive finance into the most cost-effective reductions. These two approaches are complementary and not, as some critics claim, contradictory, which we'll see in a bit. Also in the 1970s, the United Nations held its first World Climate Conference. That was 1979 in Geneva, Switzerland. 1979. Did you know there was a World Climate Conference in 1979? And if you did, were you aware that scientists attending the event from all over the world unanimously unanimously declared that, quote, deforestation and changes of land use are two of the three leading sources of man-emitted carbon dioxide? It's true. And the third cause was, quote, the burning of fossil fuels. They also unanimously concluded that, quote, some effects on a regional and global scale may be detectable before the end of this century, which is now the last century, and become significant before the middle of the next century, which is this century. 
This was 1979, 40 long lost years before the Great Awakening of 2019, which brings us to the point of this series. The enormity of the climate challenge today isn't just a market failure, it's a media failure, as we saw in part one of this three-part series. And the same science illiterate journalistic practices that muddled public discourse on basic climate science are doing the same to climate solutions. Climate change is the single greatest threat to civilization we've ever faced. And we've known that for decades. But most media, of which I was a part and lackadaisical as well until the early 2000s, treated climate change as an oddball curiosity story akin to the eventual exploding of the sun until 2019, when the effects of climate change were undeniable and there was money in covering it. But I digress. Back to 1979. Delegates to the World Climate Conference also called for the creation of a compendium of all the world's research on climate change, which became the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which I covered in episode 48. The IPCC's most recent report tells us with very high confidence that deforestation alone still generates about 13% of all the greenhouse gas emissions from human activities, while the total from this, with farming and other impacts on land, amounts to about 30%. With natural climate solutions, we can flip these impacts from being a source of emissions to a sink, as we saw most prominently in episodes 52 and 54. Meanwhile, in 1992, the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit gave us the three Rio conventions. The Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, and the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, or UNCCD. All of these conventions impact forests, and the UNFCCC called for, quote, the conservation and enhancement as appropriate of sinks and reservoirs of all greenhouse gases not controlled by the Montreal Protocol, that's the one dealing with ozone-depleting substances, resume, quote, including biomass, forests, and oceans, as well as other terrestrial, coastal, and marine ecosystems. This again was 30 long lost and incredibly well-telegraphed years ago. The UNFCCC, as I've covered throughout this series, also had something the other conventions didn't, namely the possibility of creating a global currency to finance change. Why? Because greenhouse gases have the same impact on the atmosphere no matter where they're emitted or where they're removed. That's why you can offset emissions from Germany by saving endangered forests in the Amazon. And it's why we've had rudimentary carbon markets since the early 1990s. Most people don't realize how long carbon markets have been around. And some who do realize that blame them for our failure to meet the climate challenge, which is quite frankly, idiotic. Markets are just a tool, like a screwdriver. If a screwdriver lays on the ground for 30 years and no one uses it, or someone uses it to hammer nails, do we blame the screwdriver or do we blame the person who either ignored it or misused it? Markets are just a tool for balancing demand and supply within a broader system. If we ignore the climate challenge, like most of us did until very recently, there's no demand. And you can't blame markets 
for our failure. Likewise, if we use markets as a panacea, we're hammering nails with a screwdriver. The fact is, demand for carbon finance requires climate awareness, which in turn requires media attention. Anyone who tells you, as some activists will, that we've been trying carbon markets for 30 years and they don't work is either lying to you or doesn't understand the dynamics of supply and demand. Carbon markets have been evolving for 45 years. And they've mostly been ignored until recently. That's a failure of society and not of the tools, not of the market mechanisms. As media finally give the climate challenge the coverage it requires, markets are responding to this demand. Prices for compliance credits, or those required by law, are north of 80 euros per ton in the European Union, and that forces companies to reduce emissions internally, as Nordhaus and others hoped. Prices for voluntary offsets are all over the place, but mostly up. This gives companies the ability to finance reductions and removals above and beyond what's required by law and in ways that suit their own goals and aspirations. The dichotomy between high carbon prices versus the most efficient abatement approaches that I alluded to a few minutes ago is a false dichotomy because the two approaches serve two different purposes and are not mutually exclusive. To reiterate, a high compliance price is designed to force internal reductions, while low prices in the voluntary markets funnel money to the most cost-effective mitigation opportunities or next-generation technologies. The low-hanging fruit, however, is rapidly being depleted as finance moves to ever greater challenges. Voluntary prices, in other words, are going up, and there's a growing consensus around the types of claims that companies can make regarding carbon neutrality. Deborah, next lesson, please. Sure thing, Steve. Lesson two. Every hectare of forest we save now means 50 fewer hectares we have to plant down the road. But conservation is expensive. That 50 to 1 ratio comes from a 2019 analysis in the journal Nature, which I alluded to in episode 67. It showed that if you destroy one hectare of forest, you pump 355 metric tons of carbon dioxide into the air while planting trees on the same area absorbs just 6.7 metric tons per year. That means we'll have to plant 50 hectares of trees for every hectare of forest we lose in a given year to break even or wait 50 years for those trees to grow. Either way, it means we need to save forests now. And the insight is hardly new. It's woven into the history of natural climate solutions, which began taking their current shape in efforts to rescue an agroforestry project called Miquentia, or My Basin. Miquentia was launched in 1974 by the humanitarian NGO CARE to help Guatemalan farmers improve their water. It delivered clear social and environmental benefits, but it struggled to attract long-term funding, as we saw in episode 49. Then in the 1990s, an electric company called Applied Energy Services, or AES, tried to offer its customers renewable energy, but realized, lo and behold, large-scale renewables weren't commercially viable at the time and wouldn't be for decades. Undaunted, AES asked the World Resources Institute, or WRI, for help, and WRI pointed AES to Miquentia. 
after AES helped CARE calculate the amount of carbon its activities could sequester, AES rechristened the project Mi Bosque, or My Forest, and financed it to offset some of its emissions. The real epiphany, however, came two years later when WRI decided to, quote, put some hard numbers into what was then a very soft debate. It started modeling Mibosk's impacts on surrounding forests and concluded that the project's biggest climate impact came not from new trees it had planted or the soil it had revived, but from the forests it had saved. By helping farmers increase yields, it turned out, Mibosk reduced their need to chop additional trees. Now, by all accounts, those early calculations way overstated the project's impact. But they also sparked decades of experimentation and adjustment that brought us to where we are now. Deborah? Lesson three. Carbon methodologies have evolved through 45 years of trial, error, and adjustment. NGOs, governments, companies, and UN agencies started building on WRI's work almost immediately with pilot projects across Latin America, Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa. The goals were twofold. To promote scalability, they wanted to create standardized methodologies that could be applied in different places. To prevent greenwashing, they had to make sure those methodologies reflected the latest science and updated over time. If the idea worked, they'd be able to create a tangible asset, a verified claim on emission reductions that emitters could use to reduce their carbon footprints now while reducing internally for the future. So this idea was baked in from the start. Proponents knew from the very beginning that the process of developing such methodologies would be tedious. They knew it would require peer review from scientific experts in disciplines as disparate as forestry and rural development, and it would require public consultation among stakeholders in forest communities and elsewhere. The pilot projects that ran throughout the 1990s were as diverse as the terrains and types of deforestation they addressed. From frontier deforestation, in areas where agribusinesses were devouring forests, to mosaic deforestation, where smallholders were nibbling at forests for their own survival. The solutions that emerged were equally diverse and complex and reflected in scores of scientific papers published throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. It was clear from the start that we'd never have universal agreement on any methodology and that every project would have outcomes that were partly subjective. That's just the nature of reality. But rather than let the perfect become the enemy of the good, proponents set out to identify procedures and activities whose impacts could be quantified and verified within reason, and that would deliver environmental benefits that worked in aggregate, even if there were individual failures. Put another way, some projects would underperform, but others would overperform, and the goal was to find structured, stepwise approaches, methodologies, if you will, that overperformed more than they underperformed, and in ways that most reasonable people could agree on. This turned out to be pretty damn hard, and it took until 1997 for the first credits from tree planting to be certified under anything resembling a standardized methodology. That's when the Scololte Community Forestry Project was certified under the Plan Vivo standard in Chiapas, Mexico. It took even longer for the first Red Plus credits to be generated and sold. 
In 2007, Windrock International asked some of the world's leading deforestation experts to summarize all the current thinking on standalone projects in a paper entitled Mitigation and Adaptation Strategies for Global Change. Since then, the process of creating methodologies and related projects has tended to unfold along these lines. To create a carbon methodology, some entity, usually an environmental NGO, will identify an unfunded climate solution and develop a stepwise approach to funding it through carbon finance. A panel of experts will then kick the proposal around before putting it out for public consultation where anyone who wants to can weigh in on it. Public comments are then addressed and the process repeats until it either gets to the point where most experts agree on it and it's adopted or it doesn't, in which case it goes on ice. Vera recently approved biochar and blue carbon methodologies that were in the works for over a decade. Once a methodology is approved, projects go through a similar process of expert review and public consultation. First, a proponent will write up a project idea note, which is a rough estimate of the emissions they hope to reduce or remove. And then they create a project design document, or PDD. A PDD, in the case of a Red Plus project, is a much more detailed explanation of the specific threats to an area of forest and how the project plans to address them. Now, this episode is already pretty wonky, and the article I'm adapting it from gets more complicated at this point than I remembered. So I think I'll just punt and say that if you want to get a little weedier than I am in the show, you can find a link to the article in the show notes. The gist is that processes matter, and research shows standalone projects work, but mostly in hotspots facing specific and identifiable threats that we can address by undertaking specific actions. Cambridge professor Alejandro Coutinho and others looked at 40 projects certified under the Verified Carbon Standard and concluded deforestation was 47% lower in project areas than it otherwise would have been, while degradation was down almost 60%. Others have reached different conclusions, as we'll see in the next installment of this series, but everyone agrees that to really end deforestation, we have to operate across entire jurisdictions. The next challenge is to nest these standalone projects into jurisdictional programs, but it's not so easy. Standalone projects are designed to address locally specific drivers of deforestation in areas with weak governance, while jurisdictional programs are designed to drive systemic change. More on this in a bit. Deborah. Lesson 4. Red Plus is just one component in a global mosaic of interconnected solutions, none of which can meet the climate challenge on their own. Red Plus won't magically fix the climate mess on its own, but nothing will. Instead, it dovetails with government policies, private sector initiatives, and NGO-driven solutions. As we saw in Episode 74, most of the groups advocating private sector solutions want governments to step up more too, but there's an active debate over what the role of government should be. There's this false narrative kicking around out there that everyone who advocates market mechanisms wants to hobble governments. That may be true for some of us, but most of us see market mechanisms as a tool for either implementing government policy or complementing it. The Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC, is a case in point. It emerged in the wake of the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, 
not to replace government policy, but to compensate for its lack and to prime the pump for its advent. The FSC, as we saw in episode 36 of Bionic Planet, develops standards for certifying sustainably sourced timber. The hope at the time was that people would pay more for the end products and support the activities. But FSC certification is expensive, and most consumers are penny-wise and climate-foolish. As a result, most of the groups that get FSC certified lose money by doing so, because the operating costs are higher than the premium they get in the market. That brings us to the dilemma I opened this episode with. In order to scale climate solutions up, we have to make them economically viable. Red Plus is emerging as a tool for doing just that, but it's only one of many private sector and governmental initiatives out there. The Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, is another. NGOs and corporates launched it in 2004 to promote the use of sustainably produced palm oil. This was followed in 2006 by the Roundtable on Responsible Soy, or RTRS. In each case, it ended up costing more to sustainably produce and certify products than you'd get from the market by selling them. Also in each case, Red Plus has emerged as a tool for overcoming that weakness and, unfortunately, a foil for ideologues who see it as perpetuating the market economy that they believe got us into this mess. More on that ideological divide in a bit. For now, the history lesson continues. In 2010, 400 private companies passed a resolution via the Consumer Goods Forum, or CGF, to purge deforestation from the supply chains of cattle, soy, oil palm, and pulp and paper. Then, in 2014, UN Secretary Ban Ki-moon launched the New York Declaration on Forests, which is a cluster of 10 pledges designed to end deforestation by 2030 while restoring hundreds of millions of acres of degraded land. These efforts work on the demand side of supply chains, and while they haven't ended deforestation, they have led to a major restructuring of corporate supply chains, and that's from research I conducted in 2018, which is linked to in the articles. Red Plus provides targeted funding to scale these initiatives up, and the transparency it brings can provide leverage points for government regulation. Next lesson, Deborah. You got it. Lesson five. The move from projects to jurisdictional programs was planned from the start. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, focuses on jurisdictional Red Plus. But negotiators recognized early on that it would take years for countries to agree on the kinds of international protocols that would make that work, and still longer to develop the monitoring and management systems needed to implement them. To get people moving early, or taking what they called early action, the Paraguayan delegation proposed what they called a nested approach to Red Plus in 2008. The idea was to let countries start with individual projects that would eventually be absorbed into jurisdictional systems within countries that chose to pursue them. It was clear from the start that standalone projects are different from projects that nest in jurisdictional programs, largely because of what I keep coming back to, standalone projects address site-specific drivers of deforestation, while projects that nest in jurisdictional programs encourage systemic improvement by sharing risk 
between projects and jurisdictions. It's a whole different approach, like the difference between a private security guard and a local sheriff. For this reason, the baselines of nested projects will probably be lower, as Simeon Tegel pointed out in 2010. The risk is that these projects could be punished for their early success through discrepancies with an eventual national Red Plus methodology, he wrote in Ecosystem Marketplace. When he wrote that, we thought jurisdictional Red Plus was just a few years away. But it's only starting to arrive now, and it's sure to provide a jolt. Projects will complain about more conservative baselines, and critics will claim the whole system needs to be abandoned. This, however, is how evolution works. Standalone baselines come from a time when projects were doing all the heavy lifting on their own, and jurisdictional data was scarce, while nested baselines come from a time when the jurisdictions are supposed to be helping them and more jurisdictional data should be available. When negotiators failed to reach a global agreement at the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Talks, governments and NGOs encouraged a proliferation of standalone projects and subnational initiatives to promote early action. At the same time, donor countries such as Norway, Germany, and the United States continued offering results-based payments to jurisdictions that were able to document reductions in emissions from deforestation. These payments are different from offsets in that they do not involve the creation of a carbon asset. As a result, the accounting is less rigorous than that required for offset quality payments. Many projects began as cash-strapped conservation efforts that were struggling to cover costs, while some indigenous projects began as unfunded life plans, which are indigenous management strategies designed to revive traditional agricultural practices. Over time, the projects and methodologies became more sophisticated while global climate talks ground on. At the 2013 climate talks in Warsaw, negotiators signed off on the Warsaw Framework for Red Plus. Under the framework, countries that want to receive jurisdictional Red Plus funding must first calculate a Forest Reference Emissions Level, or FREL, F-R-E-L, which is an estimate of future emissions from deforestation. Countries then submit their FREL to the UNFCCC, which provides a technical assessment but neither accepts nor rejects it. As the Paris Agreement takes effect, a country's frill will serve as a pie from which forestry-based emission reductions, including those associated with carbon projects, are sliced. Although a frill isn't a baseline in itself, it can serve as the basis of one. The upshot is that the methods of identifying priority areas within a jurisdictional system are different from those used to develop baselines for standalone projects. They focus, for example, on geospatial indicators, such as proximity to recent past deforestation instead of intricate site-specific modeling. The challenge now is aligning these two systems without losing projects that have already delivered ecological results. Deborah? Lesson 6. Ideologues of all stripes believe their truth trumps anyone else's facts. In the early 1990s, the science underpinning carbon finance was untested, while the uncertainties were unknown and the methodologies were non-existent. But the science improved, the uncertainties came into focus, and the methodologies came into being. 
As evidence mounted, opposition to market-based NCS waned, but a small yet vocal contingent of NGOs remained opposed. In 2001, more than 20 years ago, biologist Philip Fearnside, then with Brazil's National Institute of Amazonian Research, analyzed the disparate views and found that opposition to including forests in the Kyoto Protocol's clean development mechanism came almost exclusively from a small cluster of European NGOs or their affiliates in developing countries, while support for including forests in the CDM came from NGOs based in the United States or in countries facing deforestation loss, primarily Brazil. The reasons for these differences are not scientific, despite the debate frequently being couched in scientific terms, he wrote. It is very important to distinguish between what is a scientific conclusion and what is a moral judgment. This doesn't mean forest carbon methodologies have evolved to a state of perfection. And Fearnside hasn't been shy about criticizing shortcomings when he sees them, but it shows how long this ideological rift has existed. In the next installment, I'll provide a framework for differentiating legitimate critiques from ideological bias and science denial. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, written and presented by Steve Zwick, with production help from me, Deborah Friedman. If you like what you hear and want to get more and better episodes, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per episode by going to patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet written together, B-I-O-N-I-C-P-L-A-N-E-T. If you're an ethical business looking to reach a global climate conscious listenership, you can reach out to us about sponsoring the show. Write an email to Steve. That's S-T-E-V-E at bionic, B-I-O-N-I-C hyphen planet, P-L-A-N-E-T dot com. Once again, that email address is steve at bionic hyphen planet dot com. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. <laughs>